Several years ago, in 1967, the New York Public Library uh, started this feature called Ask a Librarian, and so people could call in and ask any questions to the librarian that they wanted. And uh, this is actually something that continues to this day, and even though we have, you know, all of these resources at our disposal, thousands and thousands of people call into the librarian each year to the New York Public, public Library. Uh, one of the helpline managers named Rosa Calbera Lee said this, people have been reaching out to librarians for as long as they have been libraries. Uh, there have been libraries. Only time, uh, oftentimes people do not have access to the technology at home, and I think some people just want somebody to talk to. And a few years ago they found questions, um, I think it was from the inaugural year, 1967, or shortly thereafter, they found these index cards that had questions that were asked to the librarian. Some of them were quite interesting questions. Like, what does it mean when you dream you're being chased by an elephant? Why do 18th century English paintings have so many squirrels in them? Never thought of that before. If a poisonous snake bites itself, will it die? I was actually tempted to Google that. I don't know if that... Somebody in 1962 was looking for uh, Charles Darwin's book, um, Oranges and Peaches instead of the origin of species. Uh, one person just wanted to know how to put up wallpaper. They said, I have the paper, I have the paste, what do I do next? Does the paste go on the wall or the paper? I've tried both and it doesn't seem to work. People have a lot of questions and uh, when it comes to a relationship with God, people have questions. But I think the question that kind of trumps any other question is the question of evil or why, does, why do bad things happen to people? And specifically, why do bad things happen to God's children, people that he loves? John Stott, the great theologian, put it this way. He said, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Sensitive spirits ask if it can possibly be reconciled with God's justice and love. Another theologian, Ronald Nash, puts it this way, objections to theism come and go, but every philosopher I know believes that the most serious challenge to theism was, is, and will continue be, to be the problem of evil. I've been reading through this book with a couple of friends called The Case for Miracles by Lee Strobel's great book, um, but in that book he interviews a man by the name of Michael Shermer, and Michael Shermer is the editor of Skeptic Magazine, I think he also founded it. And he kind of shares his story of kind of his conversion to atheism. Um, and ironically, he began kind of as he would call himself a Christian. He kind of became a Christian under kind of questionable motives. He was interested in this girl, so he prayed to receive Christ. But he would call himself a Christian, and he uh, wanted to share his faith with those around him and was really devoted to his faith. But slowly, there was kind of chinks in the armor, and slowly he started to lose his faith and lose his Christianity. And the, the, the thing that kind of sent him over the edge, that kind of made him become an atheist, kind of the last straw, uh, was his girlfriend at the time got cancer. And so he, as a kind of a test, he prayed and prayed and prayed that she would get healed, and yet she didn't, she didn't get healed, and she ended up passing away, and he became an atheist. And there's so many people like that who have struggled with this question of why do bad things happen? Especially, why do bad things happen to God's people, people who love him? 
And I think this passage that we're looking at kind of addresses that in a way uh, and kind of addresses the temptations we may face when we're dealing with the reality of evil and when our, un, uh, when our expectations are unmet. So a few things about this passage. First of all, that we look at this passage and Jesus is kind of the picture of the true Israel. Uh, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years and they faced many tests in the wilderness and they failed again and again. Again, they went, again and again they went to other gods and served idols. Jesus, likewise, he's, he serves, uh, he's 40 days in the wilderness, and unlike Israel, he's faithful in every way to God, and so he's the picture of the true Israel. When we think about this passage, we often think about temptation, uh, and of course, because that's what's happening in this passage, and we think about kind of ways to deal with temptation, but I think we need to look a little bit more, specific, uh, more specifically at this passage and a specific kind of temptation. And that is the temptations that Satan throws at us when our desires are unmet or when bad things happen to us or when life doesn't go as we planned. So what do I mean by that? We look at this story and right before this in chapter 3, the passage we looked at last week, we see that Jesus was baptized. And after he's baptized, we see that the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove and a voice from heaven from the Father presumably says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son whom I delight, I, I, I um, love so much, in essence, is what he's saying. And so that's what he says in the end of chapter 3. Now we get to chapter 4, and it says the Spirit of God sends Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted. Probably a better translation is tested. But the Spirit of God is the one that sends him into the desert to hang out with the devil. If you're a parent... How would you feel about dropping your child off in the desert to hang out with the devil? It's not something you would expect of a beloved son whom the Lord, the Father, delights in. And so expectations don't meet reality, and it's kind of jarring when we go from my beloved son whom I love, whom I'm well pleased, to being sent into the desert to be tested. And so I think we see in this passage ways uh, that we can be tempted, specifically when we deal with suffering and we, we deal with uh, things that don't meet our expectations. So we see a number of things in this passage regarding uh, ways that Satan tries to tempt Jesus. And the first thing uh, that he tries to do is he tries to get him to doubt God's character, to doubt the Father. If God really loved you, if the Father really cared about you, would he treat you this way? Now, Jesus, again, is in the wilderness for 40 days. He hasn't eaten in 40 days and 40 nights. And the text tells us something that's fairly obvious. He was hungry. Now, think about fasting. And someone like me, I could afford to fast a little bit. I mean, those of us who maybe have a few extra pounds, we could afford to fast. But you think about Jesus... And Jesus, I'm sure, was not overweight. He lived in a culture where you walked everywhere. You, you didn't drive cars. You didn't have the machines that we have today. You walked everywhere. You were engaged in manual labor. And also, you didn't have the food that we have today. I mean, food was scarce, especially meat and, and things like that. It was like a feast. And so, certainly, Jesus wasn't overweight. He was probably fairly slim when he began this fast, and then 40 days without food, 
40 nights without food, he's probably getting to the end of this, and it may be getting to a point where it's kind of dangerous. He's starving to death. You know, he's emaciated. And in that context, when he's perhaps even starving to death, Satan comes to him, and basically I think what he's saying is, why, why are you doing this? I mean, if you're the son of God, if you're the beloved one of God, why are you hungry? Why hasn't the Father provided food for you? But you have the power, right? You have the power. You see these stones? You can make them into bread. Why don't you just turn those stones into bread? There's no use in you starving to death. God hasn't provided for you, and you need to take matters into your own hands. But Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8 and says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And we see in Deuteronomy chapter 8 that God gives a reason why the people of Israel hungered when they were in the wilderness. Why he allowed that hunger during that time. In Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 3 it says, And he humbled you, speaking of God, and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Jesus quotes this passage, and in essence, he's saying, I realize that I need my Father more than I need food, and that the Father has to have a purpose in my hunger, that I'm fulfilling the purpose of the Father in this hunger that I'm experiencing. And so Satan was trying to make this into a relational issue. He's saying, if, if you're the Son of God, why is God treating you this way? Why has your father treated you this way? He's trying to drive a wedge between Jesus and the father. But Jesus recognized this isn't a relational issue at all. He's simply fulfilling the purposes of the father. And the father always has a purpose in hunger. And hunger is simply God's expression of love in the moment for Jesus. Because Jesus is fulfilling God's plan. It's interesting what Jesus says a few chapters later in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Jesus knows it's not a relational issue. He knows that the Father still loves him even though he hungers. Even though... He's not, it doesn't seem like he's being treated as a son. He knows that God, the Father, has a purpose. And, and I think the question is, how do we deal with our hunger? That's the question this passage kind of throws at us. How do we deal with our hunger? And, and when I'm talking about hunger, I'm not talking just about physical hunger, although some, you know, maybe some still struggle with that, putting food on the table. But there's also other kinds of hunger. Some of us, maybe we hunger for a relationship, and yet we are alone. Maybe we hunger for a family and yet we don't have that family we hope for. Maybe we hunger for financial security and yet we're struggling to pay the bills. Maybe we struggle for physical or emotional mental wholeness and yet we struggle with anxiety or we struggle with physical health difficulties. Some of us hunger for a change in our life, a change of scenery, a change of job, a change of circumstance. And yet no matter what we do, it seems like we're in the same place we've always been at. So we all have different hungers, and the question is, how do we deal with them? 
And when we're facing those hungers in our lives, we can first, we can deal with them like the Israelites did. What did the Israelites do when they were in the wilderness? Every time they were thirsty, every time they were hungry, every time they were in need, they said, oh no, God has abandoned us. Oh no, God has brought us out into the wilderness to kill us. We, we would be better off if we just went back to Egypt because God doesn't care about us. And every time they faced that need, they never trusted God. It was always, he's forgotten us. This is it. This is the end of the road for us. So we can take that route and question God's love for us, questions God's care every time we face a need, every time we have one of those hungers. Or we can do what Jesus did and trust that God has a purpose in the hunger. That even though it might not be what we expect or hope, the Father has a purpose. And just because we hunger doesn't mean that God doesn't care. And God uses hunger sometimes to draw us closer to him. To show us that more than we need anything else in life, we need a relationship with him. So that's the first temptation that Satan tries to get Jesus to buy into, to doubt the Father. The second thing he does is he tries to get Jesus to use the Father. And what Satan says here is quite interesting. Jesus has just made the statement, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so Satan responds, and he quotes the words that come from the mouth of God. He quotes Scripture. And I think this is the one of the most difficult temptations to deal with because what Satan says is not wrong. In this temptation, what he says, he speaks the truth in a sense. He calls Jesus to go up to, this, uh, to the top of the temple to throw himself down, and he talks about God's care for his beloved. Now, what Satan said, again, it's essentially true. If Jesus would jump down from the temple, God would save him. So what he says is, is not false, so that's why it's kind of a difficult temptation for us to deal with. But again, what would be the result, or what would be the, the motivation if Jesus was to buy into this temptation? If he were to jump down from the temple? Uh, number one, he could be just testing to see if God would do it, for God to prove himself. Or secondly, there were almost always there are a lot of people around the temple. If he jumped down from the temple and he was saved, it would kind of create a spectacle, create a scene for people to, to see who he was, that the power of God was flowing through him. But if he did either one of these things, he wouldn't be following the purpose of, of the Father. He would be using the Father, either using the Father to prove a point or using the Father to show his greatness and show who he was. And so the motivation would be wrong if, if Jesus bought into this uh, temptation of the devil. Because in essence, what Satan is saying is, if you're the son of God, you need to prove yourself. You need to show people who you are. He's trying to get him to use God. And we serve a God who is incredibly mighty and powerful. And he can use us in powerful ways. But we don't use God. God uses us for his purposes. We can't use God for our purposes. And, and as we see throughout Scripture, the, the story of uh, the religious people throughout Scripture is often a story of people who try to use God for their own ends. Use the power of God, use the teachings of God for the purposes of man. 
We see this with the religious leaders at Jesus' time who used the law as kind of a battering ram to oppress the poor, oppress those who were needed to glorify themselves. One writer named John Boykin puts it this way, What was so bad about the Pharisees' hypocrisy? If we think of it as consisting merely in their teaching or pretending one thing, while in fact practicing something contradictory, we will miss Jesus' main point. What he nailed them for was that they were using God and the things of God as a means to some other end. That's what was insidious about the Pharisees' example. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. Theirs was a problem of priorities. Their first priority was social status, to which end God was but a means. What greater affront to God could there be? Better ignore him altogether than to exploit him as a means to something else you value more highly. So that's Satan's temptation to Jesus. Use God for your own purposes. Prove yourself. Show yourself to be who you are. And it's a temptation, I think, that religious people, Christians, uh, face most acutely. A question uh, that's temptation to use the things of God for our own ends. To maybe pray or do spiritual disciplines, not so that we would know God, but so that we would look good to those around us. To improve our self-esteem, rather than focusing on a relationship with Christ and growing close to Him, hearing His heart. And so as believers, that's our calling to follow His plan, listen to His heart, be used for His purposes, rather than using Him for our purposes. So that's the second temptation that Jesus faces. The third temptation is to forsake the Father. Satan shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the earth, and he says, all these things I will give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. The temptation here, in essence, is God hasn't come through for you. You need to take matters into your own hands. There's another way to get honor and glory and power, and you can take that yourself. You just have to do this. You have to bow down and worship me, and then you can have what you've always wanted. You can have the power and the glory and the honor. We need to realize first, what Satan says is an outright lie here. Satan doesn't have the power to give that kind of authority. He doesn't own all the kingdoms of the earth. He doesn't have that authority. And if, if Jesus would have bought into this lie, if he would have given into this temptation, that would be the thing that caused all of those things from God not to happen. He wouldn't be the king of all kings. He wouldn't have all authority. He wouldn't have all power if he would bow down to, Satan, to, to God's enemy. So Satan lies to him and tries to get him to buy into the only thing that could really keep him from the thing that God had for him. And I think Satan tempts us with the same thing. If life isn't going the way that we hoped it would, we have hungers that aren't being met, Satan comes along and says, let me tell you how to get what you want. Forget about God. Forget about that God stuff. It hasn't worked for you. I mean, it, You've been following God all this time and your circumstance don't change. You're struggling financially, you just got to stop praying. Don't worry about that. You just got to work harder and if, it, if it's necessary maybe to cheat to get ahead a little bit, so be it. I mean, God hasn't come through. I mean, your faithfulness so far hasn't got you anywhere. Might as well take matters into your own hands. You want a relationship? Well, God's not coming through for you. I mean, you've been praying and nobody showed up, so you've got to take matters into your own hands. 
I mean, it's better to have somebody than nobody, so just go out there and find somebody. You know, go to a bar or go anywhere you can to find someone to be with you. God's not going to come through for you. You're struggling physically? Don't worry about praying. I mean, you've prayed before. Don't, don't worry about that. Forget about God. You know, you've got to go trust in modern medicine. That's what's going to heal you. That's what's going to save you. Are you hungry for joy? You can find it through a relationship. You can find it through a career. You can find it through a substance. They can satisfy the longing in your heart. And the sad truth is if we buy into these lies, we forfeit the joy of the Father. We forfeit maybe miracles that God wants to do in our life because we've left him out of the situation. So that's what Satan is trying to get Jesus to do. Just forget about the Father. Do it yourself. You're the son of God. You can do it yourself. The Father isn't enough for you. There's a pastor once who told a story about a man who came to him around Christmas time and said, Pastor, I really need to talk to you. And uh, this man who came into his office and he told him his story of woe and how um, his life had just gone, been completely messed up. Um, ten years prior, he had killed his wife in a fit of rage. Uh, he had been sentenced to ten years in prison uh, for manslaughter. He had recently gotten out. Uh, but he, had never, he hadn't seen his daughter since this had taken place over ten years ago. And, you know, the tears are just flowing down his face. And he's like, Pastor, I, 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 I just don't know what to do. I don't know if, if she would pass by me. I don't even think I'd recognize her. I just miss my daughter so much, especially at Christmas time. And so he left, tears in his eyes, sad. But the pastor said the thing that stuck out to him the most is as he came into this counseling session, he raised his hands and says, okay, pastor, before we get started, I just want to let you know something. How about, let, let's just leave Jesus out of this, okay? And the pastor, as he was leaving, mused and saw, thought to himself, well, the problem is he's left Jesus out of this. That's the problem. And that's what Satan would have us do. No matter what trial we're facing in our life, he says, leave Jesus, leave Jesus, leave the Father out of this. And he's trying to get Jesus to forsake the Father. And of course, Jesus will have none of it. Being God in the flesh, existing in the Trinity, three in one from all eternity past, he has a perfect relationship with the Father. He trusts the Father. And at this point, he says, get out of here, Satan. I, this, this is just silly. He's not going to bow down to anyone but the Father. And so, again, we see three temptations that Jesus faces and we face when we're in the wilderness. When we're hungry, when our longings go unfulfilled. Number one, to doubt the Father, to doubt His care for us. When we're facing difficulty, to say, God has forgotten about us. To use the Father, to use the things of God for our own purposes. To use Scripture, even. To justify ourselves rather than to listen to the voice of God. And finally, to forsake the Father, to forget waiting on Him, to quit praying, to ter- quit believing that He'll act on our behalf, to take matters into our own hands. And the thing that's remarkable about what Satan does in this passage is he tempts Jesus with things that are already His. He just hasn't received them yet. He's tempting Jesus with things that are already his. He just hasn't received them. He has to trust the plan and the purpose of God. So he tempts him with food. 
Now, after Jesus withstands the temptation, just a short time after this, the angels are going to come. The Father is going to send those angels to provide him with food. So God is going to provide for him. The power of God. Jesus is entering into his ministry. And God is going to, to, to use him in such incredible ways. He's going to walk on water. He's going to turn water into wine. He's going to heal the sick. He's going to cast out demons. He's going to rise from the grave. The power of God is going to be seen. It's going to be clear to everyone that he is the son of God, that he is God with skin on, and he is like no other. He's going to be called the name that is above every name. It's going to be clear that he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The authority the end of the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. The Father gives him authority over all things. So everything that, the, that Satan tempts him with, it's already his. He just has to wait for the plan of the Father. And I think the same thing is true for us as believers. The things that Satan tempts us with, there are things that we're going to experience one day. Joy, peace, contentment. Maybe we don't feel them in the moment. Satan says, take matters into your own hands. Do it yourself. Forget about God. God isn't coming through. And therein requires faith. That even when we don't see it, even when we're hungry, even when our expectations are not met, we need to trust that our Father has a plan for us. Trust that He's going to bring good things out of our life. Trust that the joy will come in the morning, even if we don't experience in the moment. And so I believe that we learn in this passage an incredible lesson about temptation and how to fight against it. And that, temptation, that lesson is this. We can fight temptation by believing that we have everything that we need in Christ while trusting in the plan, timing, and power of God. We have everything that we need in Christ. We don't need to give in to the schemes of the enemy. We have everything that we need. We just need to trust the Father's timing, His plan, and His power. The story about a man named Danny Simpson, and he did something that was pretty crazy in 1990. He decided he was going to uh, rob a bank. And so he went into this bank with a gun, and he robbed the bank and left with $6,000. Shortly thereafter, he was arrested and ended up spending six years in prison for what he did. But what's so shocking is that while he was sent to prison, the gun that he used was sent to a museum. The gun that he used was a 45 Colt semi-automatic revolver, which turned out to be an antique made by the Ross Rifle Company from Quebec City in 1918. And this pistol was worth uh, up to $100,000. So he used a pistol worth $100,000 to steal $6,000. If only he knew what he was holding in his hands. He wouldn't have tried to rob the bank. There's no way. As believers, we have everything that we need in Christ. We have a relationship with Christ. We have the peace of Christ. We have the promises of Christ. We know that the Father is going to one day make all wrongs right. So we don't need to give in to the schemes of the enemy. So let's stand strong against temptation, believing we have everything that we need in Christ while trusting in the plan, timing, and power of God. In closing, the great 
uh, Puritan writer Thomas Brooks in his book uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices said this, Remember this, that your life is short, your duties many, your assistance great, and your reward sure. Therefore faint not, hold on and hold up in ways of well-doing, and heaven shall make amends for all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love and for your faithfulness. Jesus, we thank you that you are the faithful one, the true and faithful Israel who withstood the temptations of the enemy and gives us a model for how to fight against temptation, specifically when we're dealing with difficulty, when we're dealing with want. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness, that you're honored the Father in everything, even to the point of being crucified, so that we might have life. Lord, as we deal with struggles in our life, as we deal with hungers, expectations that are not met, disappointments, Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us not to doubt your character, to know that if you gave your son, there's nothing you won't give for us. There's nothing you won't do for us. Help us not to doubt your love. Help us to listen to your voice, not to use what you've said for our own purposes, to try to use our power, your power to glorify your, ourselves, but to listen to your voice. Help us to stay faithful to you. When the enemy comes and gets us, tries to get us to abandon you, may we have the resolve to say, get out of here, Satan. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your great faithfulness. Help us to stand strong against temptation, trusting and believing in who you are. In Christ's name we pray.